What are the most important events in world history? I googled that the other day. What are the top five most important events in world history? And there were various lists out there, but there were some common themes. The discovery of electricity, VE Day towards the end of World War II, 9-11. But I sat back in my chair and I thought, maybe instead of Googling that question, what are the most important events in world history, what if I asked the Bible? Now, obviously, there's no list of the top five most important events in world history anywhere in Scripture, but if I thought about the narrative of Scripture, what it all leads to, what it points to, the story that it tells, it immediately became clear to me what the top five events in world history are, according to the Bible. The birth of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of of Jesus and the coming return of Jesus. It's all about Jesus in the narrative of Scripture. We don't often talk about that fifth one, the coming return of Jesus, and that is the topic of our Scripture passage today. The coming return of Jesus is the final culmination of the most important events in world history. We hear about it in verse 16 of our Scripture today. It says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The Lord will descend. The last most important event in world history was his ascension. The early Christian disciples had witnessed that. They had seen his death, his resurrection, and his ascension up into the clouds. And they were told by the angels who were visiting at that moment that Jesus would descend in the same way that he ascended. And so this is the event that we look forward to. But there was a little bit of a problem. There was a little bit of a crisis in the minds of the early believers. They knew that Jesus was going to descend. They knew that that fifth all-important event in world history would be coming because they knew it from Scripture and they knew it from the angels' report. But, see, those last few events happened so quickly together, they were expecting the return to be imminent. They watched him die on a Friday, rise on a Sunday thereafter, and then 40 days later, they watched him ascend into heaven, and so they were eagerly anticipating that his return would be any moment now. And they were looking up into the sky every day, wondering, will it be today? I remember learning about the coming return of Jesus when I was a kid, and I used to look up into the sky every day as well. I remember falling asleep on my bed, looking out the window into the sky. I didn't want to fall asleep before he came back. And this was the mindset of the early Christians. They thought he would come any moment now. But a bit of a crisis was developing in the early church because hours went by and weeks went by, and pretty soon years were going by, and Jesus seemed to be delaying his return. And then some of the members of the Christian community, so much time had gone by that some of the members of the Christian community were dying. And this was a little bit confusing to the early Christians because they had seen Jesus die on the cross. They had seen him rise, conquering death, and they wondered maybe for Christians, death will be no more. 
They didn't know. It was all happening so fast. And yet some members of the community began dying, and so they wondered, what's going on here? And that's the context of today's scripture. The Apostle Paul writes this epistle, writes this letter to the church in Thessalonica to help deal with the delay of the fifth all-important event in world history, according to the Bible. And we learn some things from this brief paragraph. Even to this day, while we wait all these thousands of years later, we can learn something from this as well. What does this mean? If those are the most important events in world history and the fifth one hasn't happened yet, if we're waiting for it, what does that mean as we turn and look at our lives while we wait? Well, I see three things that we can hold on to today, three things that we can take away from this scripture while we wait for his return. The first is that death is temporary. Death is temporary. Let's look at verse 13 to see what Paul is communicating to us, what the Holy Spirit is communicating to us through Paul. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep. I'm going to pause right there and focus on that word. I just had mentioned a moment ago that the crisis that the early Christians were experiencing was that people were dying. And the apostle Paul sends this letter and he has us reimagine what has happened to those people who have died. He says, look again at them. It's like they are asleep. Now, I don't think what Paul is doing here is, I don't think he's trying to soften the harsh reality of death. We're going to look at that in just a few minutes. He talks about grieving. He's not trying to give a euphemism for death by saying they're actually asleep. No, he's giving a metaphor to understand how people die in light of waiting for Christ's return, he says, think about somebody who goes to sleep. They go to sleep, and some hours later, sleep ends, and they rise up. In the same way, those who are dead, who have belonged to Christ, it's like they are asleep. Death is temporary. Paul himself uses the phrase in verse 16, dead in Christ. You ever thought about that? Being dead in Christ. It's not a phrase we often hear in the Bible. It's not a phrase we often use. We talk about life in Christ. We more often talk about Christ in us. Maybe you're like me. You went to summer camp when you were a kid where a Christian leader stood at the front and you were offered the opportunity to pray to invite Jesus into your heart. Lots of people have had that experience. We understand that often as Christians. We invite Jesus into our hearts. But did you know that there's just as many, if not more, references in the New Testament to us belonging to Christ's heart, that he has invited us into his heart, that we have life in Christ? It's what it says in the front of your program where I've listed Colossians 3, verses 1 through 4. Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. You see that? Our lives, if we belong to Christ, if we believe the gospel, our lives are in Christ. Now, what Paul is introducing to us here in this scripture is that once that happens, yes, we have life in Christ, but even if we die, we are now dead in Christ. And that makes our death temporary because Christ rose and will come back to take us to the Father our death becomes temporary. About one year ago, I stood on the earth at the Stanwich Cemetery, just around the bend. And I stood next to a hole in the earth and a casket next to me. 
It was Larry Liddig's burial. Some of you remember Larry. And in that moment, this was, this was the first COVID death that I experienced. It was about one year ago. And uh, I stood there, and I was looking in front of my eyes, and I saw Larry's adult kids and his grandchildren as they wept. And I couldn't help but think about Larry in his living years. Those of you who knew Larry, I'm sure you remember what I'm remembering right now. The man had a smile that was unmistakably the spark of the light of Christ. When Larry walked into a room, he lit up the room. His smile. Can some of you who know him, can you just picture his smile right now? He used to do hospital visits. He did rounds in the uh, Norwalk Hospital. And I was so glad when I learned that. Because I just pictured Larry's smile walking into hospital rooms, just changing the atmosphere, changing the situation. He did that as a volunteer for years. He led Bible study here at Stanwich Church faithfully for years. He loved the Word. He would spend hours studying God's Word and then teach it to his Bible study. And I stood there on that cemetery earth with that hole in the ground next to me and the casket carrying Larry's body, watching his family weep. And I knew in that moment, more than probably any other funeral I've ever officiated, I knew that for Larry, death is temporary. And I was picturing that beaming smile, that spark of the light of Christ. I was picturing Larry even now as we were grieving here on earth. I was picturing him beholding Jesus Christ, the light of the world, face to face. The fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again, ascended to heaven, and will soon return means that death is temporary for those of us who are Alive in Christ, we will be dead in Christ, and we will rise with Christ. Death is temporary. Now that sounds awesome, but maybe when you hear all of this, maybe you're thinking, but what about those grieving family members there? And what about all the things that are wrong in this world? Don't you know, Pastor? All the things to grieve in this world. Well, yes, that leads to the second thing. We're only halfway through the first verse. Verse 13, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. This is the second thing we learn from this. The first one is that death is temporary. The second one is that life is never hopeless. Life is never hopeless that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. The fact that Jesus Christ died and rose again, ascended to heaven, and will soon return doesn't mean that grief goes away entirely. It doesn't mean that sad things don't happen anymore. But it's, it's that we can redefine our grief. We don't grieve hopelessly. Yes, things are going wrong in this world. Yes, things are sad. And we grieve them. Maybe you've been to a funeral here at Stanwich Church. We often say that we have two purposes when we have a funeral. One is we want to give permission to grieve. And the other is that we want to give reason to hope. Permission to grieve. It's okay to grieve. It's okay. Things are sad. People die. Things go wrong in this world. A short time after we buried Larry Littig, 
the second COVID death that I was personally impacted by happened. And it was Minister Banks, who worked at Pivot Ministries. And this one, I'll be honest with you, it, it bothered me, it angered me, it frustrated me. Not that Larry's death didn't. Larry had had Alzheimer's, he had had a full life, it was COVID that took him in the end, and I could think of his smiling face in front of our Savior, and I thought of the same moment for Minister Banks, but with Minister Banks, he was still serving faithfully at Pivot Ministries, helping walk men out of addiction and into full life of Christ and health and hope, and COVID took him, and I found myself having a hard time grieving that with the same hope I was grieving Larry Liddick's death. I was frustrated. I was like, Lord, why, why did you allow this? And I began getting not just frustrated with Minister Banks's death, I began getting frustrated with the whole pandemic. I was just kind of in a bad place. Everywhere I went, every screen I looked at, it was just all over the place, and I was kind of tired of it all. I was weary from it. And I'll admit I was grieving a little bit without hope. Now, fortunately, I have Pastor Heather as a colleague, and I go knock on her door a lot when I have moments like that. And I learned some things from Pastor Heather over the last year. One of the things I learned from her is that human beings tend to enter the grief process not just when somebody has died, but when something we love changes. We grieve that. We grieve that. When someone dies, obviously we grieve, but when something we love, something we're used to, something we're accustomed to, something that brings us comfort or hope or joy, when that changes on us, we enter a grief process, whether we know it or not. And wow, have a few things changed over the last year? <laughs> There's so much to grieve, isn't there? there are simple things like our experience at the grocery store or the state of our nation the state of our kids, our experience on Sunday morning worship at church, it's all changed over the last year. And we have to grieve all of that. And what I was discovering when I was grieving Minister Banks's death is that there's a way to grieve that's not healthy. There's a way to grieve that it's just kind of like burying it down under the surface and it's going to come out sideways. The image that comes into my mind is like that of a beach ball. Can you picture a beach ball? Have you ever tried to take a beach ball and submerge it underwater? It's really awkward, isn't it? Try to stay on top of it. And eventually, what's going to happen to that beach ball? It's going to come out sideways. The same thing happens when we grieve loss or change without the hope of the coming rescue plan of Jesus Christ when he will come and make all things new again when he will heal and he will wipe away every tear. If we lose sight of that, of this fifth most important event in world history, that Jesus is coming back to take us to the Father, if we forget that, if we focus only on the grief, it's like trying to shove a beach ball under the surface. It's going to come out sideways. It's going to come out in weird ways. It's going to come out in explosive anger or frustratedness or grumpiness. I was in traffic yesterday. <laughs> was it you? Nancy and I were at a stoplight, and it turned green. And the car next to us was beginning to go a little slowly, but the car behind him apparently thought it wasn't quite fast enough. So what did he do? Laid on his horn. 
And Nancy and I were like, oh my gosh, chill. <laughs> We've all seen traffic over the last couple of weeks. What is that? That's beach balls flying out of the water all over the place. Because there's a lot to grieve over the last year. There's a lot of loss. There's a lot of change. And we're grieving. And it's coming out sideways. I believe there's an epidemic beginning now that the pandemic is ending. There's an epidemic following the pandemic, and it's an emotional one. And if we're not careful, if we grieve as the world grieves without hope, we're going to have those beach balls flying out of our pool too. We don't grieve like that. C.S. Lewis talks about this in The Great Divorce. Listen to how serious this is. You might just think, oh, come on, I just honked my horn once, or I just got frustrated, or I just sent off a fiery all-caps email to my pastor. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. This is serious business. He says, hell begins with a grumbling mood and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. If C.S. Lewis could see traffic in Greenwich right now. But hear what God's word says, Romans 8, verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be, to be revealed to us. See, that's the hope of the future glory that's coming. If we lose sight of the hope, if we lose sight of the fact that we are between Jesus' events, his ascension and his return, if we forget that we're there on the timeline, we will grieve as the world grieves. We will grieve as people without hope. And our beach balls will come flying out and we'll end up yelling at each other or honking on the horn of our car or doing things that are inappropriate. And we will live in misery. According to C.S. Lewis, we will live in hell now. But that's not us. Because we are alive in Christ and we will die in Christ. You know, I love the way Paul ends this paragraph talking about the coming return of Jesus Christ in verse 18. He says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another. We have so much to encourage each other with. The coming return of Jesus Christ gives us courage. It gives us hope. Life is never hopeless. Because our future is secure. That's the third thing I want us to look at from this scripture. The first, death is temporary. The second, life is never hopeless. And the third one, probably the most obvious one in here, is that our future is secure. That's what gives us hope. Verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, here's how we could spend the next few minutes. We could spend the next few minutes trying to figure this out. Wait, what's going to happen? We're going to be, what? And there's stacks of books on the rapture about this high that are just as confusing as this scripture. I don't know how this is going to work. What I want us to focus on is that last part of that verse. Did you hear this? So we will always be with the Lord. 
That's why we encourage each other with these words. Don't get tangled up in trying to figure out the mechanics of how the rapture is going to work. Hold on to this amazing hope. We will always be with the Lord. That's our future hope. It doesn't get any better than that. Hallelujah. Today is Trinity Sunday, where Christians around the world in all nations celebrate and remember the amazing fact that our God is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Why do we pause on a Sunday once a year to just reflect on that and remember that? It's to remember that even in God's very nature, even at the core of who God is, there's a relationship. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the promise of the coming return of Jesus is that we will be with the Lord forever. We will always be with the Lord. Now, I just want to end with this amazing thought that the intra-Trinitarian love of God, the intra-Trinitarian love, the love between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, it predates the beginning of the universe and it will outlast the end of the universe. It's this amazing, harmonious, perfect symmetry of love and harmony. And God looks at us and he says, I want my people to be in that relationship with me. I want them to be with me forever. And so that's why these are the most important events in world history, the birth, death, resurrection, ascension, and coming return of Jesus is because that is the action plan for God to bring us back into relationship with God's self because sin broke that relationship between us and God, that beautiful, harmonious, perfect, awesome relationship. Sin separated us from God. And so the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit conspired together to come up with a plan to bring us back into the fold, to bring us back into the eternal love of God. And it required that God the Son would experience the separation that our sin caused to the point where he would be dying on the cross and he would call out to the Father, why have you forsaken me? Think about that. Uh, One member saying to another member of the Trinity, I feel forsaken by you. What was happening there is that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit were opening the arms wide of the intra-Trinitarian love to say, come on, dear Christians, come back in to this eternal relationship. That's the price he paid to bring us into harmony in relationship with God forever. And he's coming back soon to culminate that plan so that we can experience perfect, harmonious love. That's our hope. Death is temporary. Life is never hopeless. Our future is secure because Jesus Christ was born, died, rose, ascended, and any day now will return. Amen.